0: Show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is June the thirtieth, 2017, and this is episode 2035 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, Friday, Friday. That means it is time for the Expert Council Q&A show. I've got a really great one for you today. Here's what we're going to be talking about today. I have Building Your Own Coffee Roaster from the awesome Nicole Sauce. I have Buying Vehicles Online Out of State, The combination lineup here between Stephen Harris and Charles the Humble Mechanic. I have The Propagation of Grapevines by Nick Ferguson. I have Cleaning Up an Established Pond with Jeff Lawton. I have The Ins and Outs of Hardware Wallets for Cryptocurrency with Brandon Todd. And I have Selecting, Caring For, and Training the Homestead Cat for me, myself, and I, Jack Spierko. All that and more in just a bit before we do get into your uh, questions this week for the Expert Council. Let us go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. And again, we've got a great lineup today. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was. We are up to the year 18, the year 18 AD. We have, from David Verne, a new governor, same problems. And from Southpaw Ben, attack of the red eyebrows. Yep, here we go. New governor, same problems from David Verne. Marcus Camilius' term as governor of North Africa has ended, and he has been replaced with Lucius Apronius. The new governor immediately has to deal with an old problem. Tarfinius Tacfarnius has rebuilt part of his army and has returned to his old hit-and-run tactics. The third Augusta Legion spends a year chasing off one raiding party after another. But Tacfarnius isn't risking another open fight. He's learned from his mistake, folks. My take by David Verm: The the Roman legions were very good at fighting an open battle being comprised mostly of disciplined infantry. There was only a small number of cavalry in each legion. Any significant cavalry force had to be levied from the Roman allies. Tecfarnia could simply turn and disappear into desert whenever Roman soldiers were spotted. North Africa may seem like barren desert, but during this time it was called the breadbasket of the empire. One estimate has the province producing one million tons of grain each year. The constant raiding was a serious disruption to the supply and was causing prices to rise in Italy. So, I think my lesson in context of history there is, why is it no longer a breadbasket? Because farming creates deserts. That's why. Farming, in the way that we have been farming for the past 10,000 years and continue to farm, we just do it at much grander scales today, creates deserts. If we are not regenerating soil, farming creates deserts. Keep that in mind as I read something going on, you know, a quarter of the way across the world, uh, Attack of the Red Eyebrows by Southpaw Ben. This year, the flooding of the Yellow River in China produces especially disastrous uh, results to Wang Mang's attempts at agrarian reform. That would be farming. Between the flood and the laws, those affected by the flood could no longer grow enough food to survive, so they took the the only other recourse they could see, rebellion. This rebellion would prove draining to the Wang Mang dynasty and will be a key part in its eventual demise. My take by Southpaw Ben. Don't f with farmers' livelihoods with laws that will quote help them end quote or by giving preference to companies that ex- giving preference to companies that exploit them. This will inevitably lead to either famine or rebellion. We see this in the USSR, in communist China, and in modern U.S. Wait, the modern U.S. Yep. While not true famine, we are causing malnourishment and possibly eventual actual famine by abusing our soils and making farming seem like a career path only taken by those too dumb to, quote, get a real job from a college degree. While there are still intelligent farmers, there is definitely a rural brain drain. Also, do you really want the least capable among us producing the very food we rely on to be safe and nutritious? Because I sure don't. Disclaimer South Bob Ben is working this summer as a milker on a 200 milking cow uh, farm by an, run by an intelligent friend. Unfortunately it's conventional and not organic or regenerative and writes these segments most days while mixing heifer feed. okay So yeah when you jack with farmers sooner or later you screw things up. I mean that, that's, that's the reality. But it's not like farmers don't screw things up, but they're doing the best they can. they don't know they don't most of them don't realize, but I think we're getting there. I think we're getting to the point where most people in agriculture, including those in government, realize what they're doing, but they believe they have to keep doing it, quote-unquote, for now. Like some mysterious alien ship one day will come with a solution when the solution's right in front of us. It's putting carbon in the soil. You guys know me. It has nothing to do with global warming at all. Carbon belongs in the soil without a carbon cycle that returns carbon to the soil the only other result is desert desert I remember reading about a guy that was working in the United States in the early 1800s they were cutting timbers for the mines in the mountains out in like Montana and I remember his journal said that as they cut the trees they watched the creeks dry up Seems foolish, but you know we're doing far worse still today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And folks, I'd like to remind you if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the member support brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. And click on Members to Learn More. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survival Podcast.com with TSPC, service discount, in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up with that let's go ahead and get into your questions for the expert council first one up nicole sauce tell us about building your own coffee roaster take it away nicole
1: howdy tfp nicole sauce here from living free in tennessee taking an expert counsel question from ford ferguson ford asks how do you make a homemade coffee roaster and I, this is a fun question for me to answer because just about every small coffee roaster I've ever met who had to grow ended up at some point along their journey making a homemade coffee roaster and it is a good way to save a lot of time. Now I got another question via email asking what did you look for in your coffee roaster as you upgraded and what considerations did you think about along the way? So I think we probably have time for both questions. So Ford, I'll start with your question which is about how to make a homemade coffee roaster. And oddly enough, I've, I've made a number of them and I've tried a few things that have worked well and not worked well. The most important thing to know is that coffee beans require even heat throughout the roast process for all the beans or you'll end up with what I call the Rocky Mounted Spotted Fever Roast where you have some dark beans and some light beans. And if you're trying to sell it, that's not very attractive unless you put a marketing spin on it like I did that one time I got the funny roast. Um the way that many coffee roasters do this is either by moving the beans or by moving air through the beans. And the ones that do the best job do both. Now, most home roasters can handle about a cup of coffee beans. These are the ones that you see on Amazon for, you know, 80 bucks or so. They'll take about a cup but not higher volumes. I think this is because you need to get the beans up to about, you know, between – 198 and 240 degrees by the end of the roast. That's Celsius, not Fahrenheit. So it's about double-ish that for Fahrenheit. And because they have to have such a high intensity of heat that's evenly distributed, that means you have to also think about air movement, insulation, all of these things. Doing this with a cup of beans is not so hard. But As a roaster, as you're growing your business and needing to roast more volumes of beans at one time, you really need to think about, okay, how am I going to keep these beans equally heated so that the roast turns out well? The other thing you need to do is make sure it happens fast enough so that your roast doesn't take 45 minutes. A bean that's been roasted for 45 minutes to achieve its ultimate doneness, so to speak, it doesn't have quite the same depth of flavor as one that takes somewhere, if you like a dark roast, somewhere between, oh, 16 and 25 minutes. So getting them up to speed quickly versus taking a long time really impacts the, I don't know, vibrance of the flavor is how I think about it. So here's what I've tried. Originally, I had one of those popcorn poppers that you crank on a stove top and and I would put it over a burner outside and crank the handle, and that quickly became not very fun because as I put more beans into the popcorn popper, they ended up, Taking too long to roast. So the other thing I did was put a rotisserie attachment on my propane grill and I used one of those infrared temperature gauges to take the temperature of each burner. It was a four burner grill and make sure they were all putting out heat at approximately the same rate. And then I roasted up to three pounds at a time in a drum and that did pretty well as long as the temperature outside was a Above, you know, 60 degrees or so. When it dropped below 60 degrees, my roast started taking too long. But that made a really even roast. And that's a great interim step from your, you know, half-pound roaster uh, up before you're ready to shell out the 3500 bucks that I just shelled out for a roaster. So, okay, so from there, the thing that could make that better would be moving the air. And when I was looking at different ways to – grow hollow roast coffee i did think about putting a fan like an air circulation system in to my barbecue grill roaster and just moving the air around the beans to help speed up the roast it's almost like you're turning your grill into a rotisserie oven with convection cooking which speeds it up and that gives you that combination of airflow and moving the beans around, but I also had a convection oven down in one of our extra buildings, and I just thought, well, what if we just do convection? I'll tell you what happens. Rocky-mounted spotted fever happens in my convection oven. I, I put beans on a cookie sheet, single layer, so that didn't quite work, but if you put a rotisserie attachment in your convection oven, and you can often find these on Craigslist for like 50 bucks. Um, You would probably have a pretty good roaster there and an oven goes up to, you know, 425-ish to 500 degrees, which is about where you're bringing your coffee beans to anyway. So those are the things to consider. Now, there are totally different technologies like the big, big roasters have a big, flat, hot plate with an arm that moves the beans around I wasn't quite ready to go that direction. The ones I've seen the most combine moving the beans and circulating air. So, Ford, I hope that answers your question. Now, Michael, you wrote me an email asking what I consider because you are a home roaster, and I'm so excited that you're running your business and thinking about growing. As I was looking at roasters, the biggest thing I needed to to think about was how many beans – can I really sell and how much is it going to cost me to expand the business? Because if if I needed to roast 20,000 pounds a year to even justify the cost and I could only sell like 1,000 pounds a year, it wasn't going to make sense for me. And I really was wanting – I had to decide a few things, like on the business side. Is this a lifestyle business? Is this something I want to turn into, something that's replicable and takes over the world like Starbucks has – um, obviously, I don't. I really like to hone in on what I'm best at, which is that concierge sort of craft coffee, where I do the hard work of tasting the beans and putting my love and care into finding the right roast profile, and so that you don't have to go through all of that effort. Now, because of that, I figured I could sell a certain number of beans a month, about you know between 250 and 500 pounds a month is my target. And from there, I worked backwards towards looking at different roasters. And here's what I found. Originally, I couldn't find a roaster that was under 11,000 bucks. And then I knew I was going to have to build a roasting room that would be inspected by the County inspector and potentially the FDA and blah, 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 blah. Like you see how this goes down a big rabbit hole. I estimated about $20,000 was going to be needed to do that. And wasn't going to do that until I was introduced to somebody who, who connected me with some interim step roasters where you can roast about 500 pounds a week max in these, this class of roasters. And they use hot air primarily. So there's a, a burner underneath that is propane run in, in the case of mine because I live out in the middle of nowhere. We don't have natural gas and then it also uses a really powerful fan to move the beans around and with with this quote unquote technology i i'm able to achieve a consistent roast and uh be, so that i can deliver to my clients what i have promised them now there were many kinds of this kind of roaster as i got to looking and some of them were 1500 bucks some of them did half the amount And as I looked into it, I realized my best choice for the business is to buy the one with greater capacity so I don't have to upgrade again in a year or two. So I sort of planned something that will take me three to five years into this business and something that's fairly set it and forget it, so to speak. So once I've created a roasting profile, it connects to a computer. I paid an extra $1,000 for this roaster so that I don't have to physically manipulate the roast every second of the roast along the way. So I hope that helps you as you go into your journey journey of coffee roasting. And thank you guys both for your questions. I, I hope as you can tell, I love coffee. And speaking of coffee, if you are a member of the MFD and you support Jack, I support you as well. There is a discount that's recently been added to the MFB. So be sure, if you want to go to HollerRoast.com and order coffee, to kick Jack some cash and make sure you're, you're up to date on your MSB so that you can get a little discount on your purchase. Ford, Michael, thank you for your questions. TSP, it's great to be part of this community, and I hope you have a great week. And Jack, thank you so much.
0: The The big takeaway from that, whether you want anything to do with coffee in of itself or not, is from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what I call doing the math. And I I find it ironic how many people I hear from with business questions, and and many I respond to, you know, briefly and directly rather than on air, that you can tell they haven't done any of the math yet. They haven't even begun to understand, you know, an egg business. will you know, and we're going to make enough money to pay our mortgage. Okay. Well, do you even know how many eggs a year that is? Because that's a tough. That's a tough thing to do. You can do it with the right niche market and all, but I mean, you should at least know from a gross revenue standpoint what are you talking about next. And most people don't. And it doesn't matter what business it is. I've heard you know people with T-shirts and like, do you know you make about three bucks, four bucks a piece on a T-shirt you sell for twenty dollars? When it's all said and done with, so how many T-shirts do you have to sell to make you know uh, something that would approach twenty uh, percent of, of an average annual income at a job? Like So it doesn't matter where it's coffee, it doesn't matter whether it's widgets, it doesn't matter whether you're doing consulting work, it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're selling online courses, etc. There is a place for the exuberance of let's just try it. But there's also a place where, especially when we start spending money and making investments, what is the ROI time on this based on X, Y, and Z? With X being... The minimum amount of revenue you can expect. Like, it's a complete failure, but like you know you can at least do this. B being, you know, Y being like, well, it's okay, it's lackluster. And Z being, not a home run. Not a home run, but exceeding your general expectations. And if exceeding your general expectations in a new business is a home run, and when I mean home run, I mean like you have more money you know what to do with, you're trying to figure out how to reinvest it. Your general expectations may be too high because it takes time to build a business. I don't say that to deflate anybody's dream, because I think there's a place for just getting out and getting it done. But folks, do the math. With that, I have a question. Uh, that's really a question. It's kind of sort of a question, but like a whole bunch of information from Stephen Harris, and then he hands it over to Charles the Humble Mechanic. So I'm just going to play those back-to-back. Steve, Charles, take it away.
2: Hey, hello. This is Steve Harris from the Expert Council, and I have a question for fellow new Expert Council member Charles Sandville. Charles, buddy, welcome to the Expert Council. I cannot say enough great things about what you have said so far on the survival podcast, you are so dialed in. You are so spot on. I mean, I will, t- I take what you're saying as gospel. Uh, in case you don't know my background, I was a research and development engineer for Chrysler Corporation explicitly for Jeep and truck engineering, uh, for 10 years from 1990 to, to 2000. I know a great deal about vehicles, but guess what, Charles? I don't know squat. When it comes to fixing vehicles, I can tell you about their design, not how to fix them. That is where you are the man, and I think you are just so dialed in, it's great. Uh, I know mechanics usually go, ah, 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 damn engineers, they put this here and that here. Actually, I'll tell you inside secret, Charles, that's the tube jockeys. There's tube jockeys that lay out the vehicle, and then we look at it, you know, on the Katia plot, on the, you know, the graphic screen, and we go, yeah, it fits physically, but it doesn't fit thermally. You know, no, you can't put it there. So, um, anyways, I had an... I've. This is part of the whole diesel truck discussion on Survival Podcast. Uh, for your information, uh, I bought a 2001 Dodge diesel, uh, in, uh, 2004. I bought it and it had 175,000 miles on it. I drove it from 2004 to 2016. So for 12 years I drove that vehicle and I put, uh, I went up to 318,000 miles on it. Now, 318,000 miles, you know, yes, I had put work into it, and everything you fix on a damn diesel is heavy-duty and it's it expensive. But I paid $15,000 for the vehicle in 2004, and then I sold it for 5500 on Craigslist in 2016. That's, you know, $10,000 for 12 years. That's not a bad thing, plus the repairs. And like Jack says, everything on a diesel brakes, except for the engine, true statement, uh, Charles add in to that too, please, with your experience so um, I love Diesels, I love their economics. I can afford a diesel and I can afford to I keep them for ten years because I want the economics of the diesel engine so uh, last year in twenty sixteen, this is where I want really want your input on. I am living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I Uh, My previous truck, the the 04, I bought in Dallas. I drove to Dallas in a Dakota with a camper, and I found a diesel lot. And guys in Texas, they have truck lots that are like diesels only. So I found uh, the truck in Dallas. And I said, you're going to buy my Dakota? He goes, yeah, we'll take it to auction. I said, I'm buying that Dodge diesel. He says, okay, fine. I drive off the new truck in my camper. So I wanted to do the same thing in 2016 as I did in 2004. And I go online. Uh, in fact, Charles, please insert your favorite places to go online and find a vehicle because, uh, they are, Auto Trader is changing. CarMax is, I don't know if it's number one or whatever, please add in on, to that. So I use, uh, Auto Trader at the time and I go find a place in Dallas, Texas that sells basically Dodge diesels only. And it was, uh, Villas Motors, V-I-L-L-A-S-M-O-T-O-R-S. I talked to Jeremy, the sales rep, and they are totally Internet-focused. And they have, like, three cars in their lot, and they have, like, 30 cars inside their facility that are for sale, and they cater to the Internet only. So – I go, okay, you got the truck. I've seen the pictures of it. I want this 2014 Dodge diesel with 59,000 miles on it. I want to finance it for $33,500. That's the price. It is 1.5 years old. It was owned by one construction company prior to me owning it. He gave me the Carfax on it and everything else. You know, brand new, the vehicle was like $62,000, and I'm buying it for thirty-three. a year and a half later, guys. There's some economics for you. So uh I did that. Then I Googled for a private inspection service in Dallas, and I found used car detectives. Paid them $125. The guy goes and spends an hour and a half with my truck. And the, the, the seller was like, yeah, sure, no problem. Send mechanic. Yeah, he can drive it. He can do anything he wants to it. You know, they're, they're totally above board and open. So the mechanic goes there, spends an hour and a half. He sends me 85 photographs of every ding and dent and everything from the vehicle. And this vehicle came to Villas via auction. So it, as I found out what happens with auction vehicles, the spare tire wasn't there. The jack wasn't there. Uh, the truck had been used a lot. So the, the seat panel, the, the fabric on the driver's side was ripped and i got to tell you these uh guys selling the vehicle they were dialed into everyone they had every ding covered up uh fixed with cover up paint you know just uh a little enhancement here and there they had a seat guy a fabric upholstery guy he replaced the entire quarter panel of the seat um and he did everything that my my inspection settled wrong he fixed everything now how to get the vehicle for me to me and i don't want to drive down i don't want to fly down there and then you know take an uber to the vehicle get the vehicle drive for two days home a hotel driving blah 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 i didn't want it so there's this tv show called um Shipping Wars on A&E. And they are, they highlight people who use U-Ship. dot pcom And I go to U-Ship and I say, I wanna, you know, move a vehicle from here to here. And I wanna pay for it. And they give me like a list of all these people that move vehicles, haul vehicles. And I picked one It was the second cheapest one. It wasn't the cheapest one. They had like 2,500 feedback and 99.8% positive comments. You know, with mathematics like that, they are going to do you a good job. So I called them. I said, you realize this is a full-size Dodge Ram uh, 2,500, 2,000-pound truck. It weighs 8,000 pounds. And this is after I booked the gig with them. They said, yes, we understand that. I said, you're not going to show up and charge me extra, are you? They go, no, no, is it a duly? I go, no, it's not a dually. He, sh- he goes, sir, we will show up. We will deliver it for what you were quoted and what you paid. It is just fine. Charles, please insert more details about shipping vehicles across the country. So uh, I said, I don't care when I get it. A week and a half, two weeks, three weeks, whenever. And they go, we love you, man. So anyways, it took a week. They got a a car carrier down there. And this is a big car carrier to carry like 12 cars. He picked up my truck and he drove it and, and stopped off like three places on the way. But he drove it to me in Pennsylvania in like three days. And the guy pulls over to the side of the exit near my house, like five miles from my house. He pulls over on the side of the road. His partner's in the truck. Uh, because they dual team to do more miles. And he unloads it off the Dodge, off the truck, off the, you know, how they're on the car carrier. He unloads it, and he drives it right to my door and goes, sir, here's the keys to your new truck. Could you please give me a ride back to my uh, semi-truck? Yeah, buddy, sure, no problem. Door-to-door service. I loved it. So, Charles, I've had lots of people ask me about this experience. I've given them details. But would you please talk about how someone like in Minnesota or Michigan or Montana, you know, a winter environment, how can they go online and find a good car, a good truck, a good diesel vehicle? How can they go online and find one? Have a mechanic check it out. So. You know they have a high level of confidence in it, and then what are their options for getting it shipped back to them, and how are the economics of doing this compared to the economics of buying a vehicle like in Minnesota that's been exposed to salt for five years? You know what are the advantages and disadvantages, and uh, I plan on keeping my thirty-seven thousand, my thirty-three five hundred thousand dollar truck. I plan on keeping it for a good 10 years at least. And, you know, I'll probably end up selling it for probably $15,000 in 10 years and doing the whole thing over again. But, uh, Charles, you're awesome. I, I trust every darn thing you're saying, uh, as gospel. Please unload and, uh, and tell me what I did wrong. Tell me what I could have done better. Tell us the way to do it, Charles. You're the man. This is Steve Harris, and I look forward to hearing your response. Thank you so much for devoting your time to the expert panel. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do, Charles. It is a lot of fun.
3: What's up, everybody? Hey, it's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. Uh, first of all, Mr. Stephen Harris, thank you so much for the kind words, man. I really appreciate that. It definitely means a lot to me. Now, you guys... Just got a 10-minute class on how to buy a used car, or a new car for that matter, online. I mean, in true Steve Harris form, he went down to every detail and told you guys exactly what you can do to both get a slamming deal on a car, get it sent to your doorstep, and get exactly what you want. So, bravo to you, Steve. I I think that's awesome, and that'll help a ton of people out there in the community. When I first listened to Steve's question, I was really racking my brain to think, like, Charles, how can you bring any more value to that than than what Steve already said, because he did go detail by detail, line by line, and gave you guys an awesome class on how to buy a car. But there's a couple things that he had specifically asked and some things I wanted to touch on. Now, as far as websites go on places to buy cars, Steve mentioned auto trader, fantastic cars.com mentioned CarMax which is cool because you can pool the entire country of CarMax stores and get one shipped from somewhere else if you are in the Rust Belt you can get one sent from Arizona where I don't think they know what Rust is there's a newer one that I see a lot locally and that's called Carvana where you jump on their website you click the car you want their website's fantastic you can zoom in on locations uh, around the car it'll show you dings and dents and scratches. Even if you're not really in the market for a car right now, I recommend you jump over to their website and check it out. It's pretty cool. You guys may remember a while back, I answered a question about buying a car from CarMax. In the comments of the YouTube video that I put out with that audio, a lot of people were talking about a website called shift.com. Very similar kind of mindset to what we're talking about here today. Of course, Cars Direct, Car Gurus. I'm sure if you searched. Buy a car online, you'll find 17 other ones that are all pooling from the country to help people find cars. Now, even though I shop for cars a lot, I don't buy a lot of cars, especially from around the country or online, because I'm usually looking for a car for a different purpose. It's either a fixer-upper that I'm looking for, something to flip... Or something that I want and it's very specialized where an internet search is the best way to do it. But if you're looking for your next commuter car, your next, you know, daily driver, those websites are fantastic. One thing I will caution you about on the surveys and the ratings of these websites, be very careful. Just like with any website or anything that has a review to it, you really want to drill into what the reviews mean. If you search Cars.com, you'll find that they have a one-star review. There's five reviews. Four of them are five-star. One is one-star. But because the one-star was the newest rating, that weighed heavy on the rating system. So just keep that in mind when you're reading ratings on just about anything. You have to use the gray matter a little bit and really understand what's going on with the reviews. To me, if a website has five reviews, four of them are five star, then they're probably doing something at least okay. I put together five tips that I think will help add to what Steve said about buying a car online. And the first one is do not be in a hurry. If you are going to explore this route of buying a car, which I think, again, is fantastic, you cannot be in a hurry. You cannot be impatient. You can't expect for to fire an email to a company and get, the deal done in 15 minutes, alright? This is going to take time. Especially if you're going to f- hire a company out to go and inspect the car, which we'll talk a little bit about more in a second. This kind of thing will take time. On the shipping end of it, if you are shipping a car across country, the most affordable way to do it is to not be in a hurry. You really want to try and get with a company that ships multiple cars at one time. It's going to be most cost effective for that company to completely fill a load of cars before it sends it from California to New York. So you'll end up saving a bunch of money... If you're patient and you don't need the car that day. So if you need a car today, this is probably not the way to buy it. But if you're not in a hurry and you have the time to wait three weeks, four weeks, then I think shipping a car you know, out of the Rust Belt. I grew up in Illinois, so I totally get the Rust Belt thing. Shipping a car from the south to the north or east coast, west coast is a great option. Just don't expect it to happen in five minutes. The next thing you're going to want to consider is any state tax state registration and state inspections most of the time when you buy a new car they're rolling all of that stuff into the price or most often you're financing it and so they're adding it all in and if you buy a car from out of state very similar to how if you bought a car from an individual seller you would have to take it upon yourself to pay those taxes uh, to pay that registration, and to get the car inspected if your state has an inspection. And while in some states that may not exist or it may not be a big deal, there are other states where you might have to come out of pocket a couple of grand right off the top after you just spent a bunch of money getting a car shipped from another state in order to make sure that you're driving around legally. You'll definitely want to do the research on your state Before you commit to that, you don't want to spend all your money on buying this car and then find out you got to write a $4,000 check when you register it just to cover the taxes, registration, and licensing fees. The next one is one of my favorite ones to talk about because it's so satisfying and drives me nuts all in the same breath. And that is something I preach all the time, no matter what you're doing, whether you're buying a car like Steve did across country or it's at your local shop get the car inspected, and this is the key, before you buy it. I have done hundreds of these type of inspections in my career. I have found more cars, I think, that I have said, hey, you know what? You really shouldn't buy this car. You keep looking for something else. There's a better deal to be had out there. Just because it's cheap, doesn't make it a good deal. And I think being at a dealership, you sort of lose a bit of credibility because they just assume that you're trying to sell them another car. I don't really care. You're paying me to give you my honest assessment of the vehicle. Uh, You can buy it from wherever you want, but I'm giving you my honest assessment of the vehicle. And part of that, if the car's really not worth buying... I feel obligated to tell people that it's not worth buying. And I've also had plenty of occasions where someone has brought it in for what we always refer to as a pre-purchase inspection after they purchase the car. There's nothing you can do. There's really very little point except for me to tell you here's how much money it's going to cost for you to keep your car on the road. So remember, in the case of buying it on the internet, it's totally makes sense. But even if you're buying local, make sure you get someone to inspect the car Don't rely on the place that you're buying it from to do that thorough inspection like a third party independent type company would do. I also probably wouldn't do this with a car that's really cheap. If you're buying a $2,000 car, you're going to spend more time and effort to get the car to you than the car's worth. So don't waste your time with cheap cars on this. Just even if it's rusted, it's, you know, thousand bucks, whatever. Uh, Steven's buying a very expensive car, 30 something thousand dollar truck. It makes more sense to spend the extra money there than it would on something really, really cheap. I also wouldn't even consider this process for a private seller. I'm thinking of how many times I've put cars on Craigslist or somewhere else and gotten that email that you know is a scam and if... If this situation came about and I got an email from Steve wanting to buy my car out of state, I'd probably tell him to uh, to go pound sand or something because I wouldn't want to deal with someone coming to my house, looking at the car, complaining about knicknacky things that I I don't care, right? I did a good job on the ad, so you know should know what's wrong with it. Don't waste your time with private sellers unless unless this is sort of a collector's car. Or I've had friends buy really high end cars from individual sellers. That's a whole nother ball game. If you're buying a used Ferrari, whole nother ball game. If you're buying a Toyota Camry, I wouldn't waste your time. There's a million other Toyota Camrys out there anyway, so plenty to choose from. Finally, Steve has sent me a couple of other questions about the best cars to buy, the longevity of gas versus diesel, what's better, what'll last longer. And guys, that's a really tough question to answer. It, it's so dependent on. What you're buying, what you're doing with it, what your expectation of the car is on whether it's going to last a long time or whether it's not. If you buy a four-cylinder, five-speed little truck and expect it to tow 10,000 pounds, yeah, it's going to wear out pretty darn quick. Uh, there's of course, plenty of websites out there that I don't fully trust, but they have their readings. Uh, JD power is one where you can look at car ratings and things like that. There's more information out there about individual models of cars than has ever been. So you have the opportunity to do your research. I truly believe that there's no excuse for anyone to be buying something that expensive, without doing their homework on. There's no reason to not be informed about a model of vehicle, unless you're buying the first model of the vehicle, and then I always feel like that's a bit of a dice roll anyway, and you're kind of the rolling beta test for the car, and that comes along with the, you know, sometimes cool factor of having the new model, but you do be the guinea pig or the beta tester of that new model. When people ask me this question, I usually tell them something like, you know, you're going to be making payments on it, If it's a $1,000 more than you wanted to spend over the lifetime of the car, that's a drop in the bucket. Don't worry about it. Get something that you like that fits your needs both today and, you know, perhaps look to the future a little bit and see, make sure you're getting something that might fit your needs in the next five years or so. And, of course, buying a used car, you let the first owner take the depreciation punch in the gut, and you save a ton of money on a car that is just beginning to be broken in. Cars really are better today than they ever been. We can look back and think they just don't build them like they used to and we'd be a hundred percent right. You know, we, we always have this nostalgia about things that are older. And if we truly drill down and analyze what the problems were then versus now, cars are better than they have ever been in the history of cars. Like I said, I didn't have a ton to add to Steve's experience with buying that truck. I think that's a fantastic way. You know, the internet has opened up the doors to the country for us to select whatever car we want. And as long as we're patient and willing to do the legwork for it, we can have any single car we want and probably get pretty darn close to the price that we want to pay. You do lose a little bit. You don't get to sit in it. You don't get to touchy-feely it before you buy it. But if you know what you want, you can test drive one local. If you know what you want, it really doesn't matter. And paying a company like the Used Car Detectives or something to do that legwork for you, I think is an awesome use of 120 bucks. In fact, to my fellow mechanics or technicians out there, uh, what a cool business model and, uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, it's something that I've I've kicked around myself. So uh, I, I may be venturing down that road. Guys, thank you so much. I hope I hope that I could add to Steve's experience and give you guys a little bit more value. That was a lot that Steve gave us. And I really appreciate him and his kind words and his contribution to the community. I'm thankful to be able to lend my experience to the community as well. So, guys, with that, if you want to see more of my videos or check out more of my stuff, head over to HumbleMechanic.com. Thank you, TSP and Jack. I hope you guys have an awesome weekend, and I'll talk to you again soon. Oh, and one last thing. I think Steve should also start a car-buying 1234 website just to add to his
0: 1234 website empire. Well, that's just a whirlwind of knowledge from two very switched-on folks. We're very lucky to have both of them as part of our expert council. Next up, I have a question from Jeff uh, for Nick Ferguson on propagation of grapevines.
4: Hey guys, Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com here to answer another plant propagation question, uh, and it's, uh, from Jeff from OMG Leatherworks. He has grape vines crawling over his neighbor's fence onto his property, it sounds like, and he wants to get some rooted from that vine. He wants to know how to do that and if they're annual or perennials. Well, grapes are perennial and, which means, they keep growing year after year from the same plant. Annuals reseed every year and the parent plant dies. So since these are perennial and we want copies of the parent plant, we're going to clone that sucker. So I have two methods for you, one for the summer and one for the winter. And I'll tell you about both of those methods. So for the summer, you're going to use a method called layering. And you can look it up online if you want some pictures. But you basically want to get some pots filled with potting mix and make sure the vine can go into the mix, then back out again into the next pot. Think about it like an old-fashioned sea serpent. The vine is the sea serpent, and the pots filled with the mix are the ocean. So whenever that vine goes into the mix, just take a sharpie and make a little mark at the soil level where it goes in and where it comes out. And you want it to go in there a good five or six, eight inches, so it stays in there and it stays still. So you make those marks... Uh, at the soil level so that you know how much of that vine is going to be in the soil for later. So you do that with as many pots as you can fit the vine into so you can get several finished plants. Now, you should have a single vine snaking into and out of the pots with marks where the vine will be under the soil. Take the vine back out of your potting mix, and you should have at least one node under the soil for each pot. If not, don't worry about it. It's best if there's a node, but you'll probably be all right if there's not. So if there is a node, which optimally there should be, then what you'll want to do is take a dull knife or carefully use a sharp one and scrape the outside brown bark away to expose the green cambium. And the cambium is the layer of green inner bark just under the surface of the tougher, most likely browner, outer bark. And once that's exposed, you sprinkle a little bit of powdered rooting hormone onto it, Um, most any powdered rooting hormone will do just fine. You can get that pretty cheap at, you know, your local big box stores. Um, or you can, uh, put some of that powdered rooting hormone on like a paper plate or in a bowl or something like that. Then you rub the vine onto the hormone powder. So you can sprinkle it on or rub it on there. Uh, if the vine is kind of stiff, then it'd probably be easiest to just rub it on there. So keep doing that to all the spots that will be under the dirt, and you only need, you know, a, a little bit of that, uh, cambium exposed. You know, it'd be nice if it was, you know, a couple of inches of the vine or, you know, half of that root node. But once you have them scraped and coated, carefully put them back into the pots and recover with the potting mix and keep that mix moist just like you would a regular plant. Be careful not to go too heavy with the water because there shouldn't be any root activity for a little while and not much water will be used. So don't overdo it. You'll you'll just cause it to rot. Just keep the stuff moist like a fresh slice of chocolate cake. And then later this winter you can cut the pots free of the parent vine. Just make sure that you cut the basal end of the vine and leave the apical end of the vine sticking out of your pot the basal end will die off because it doesn't have any roots and the apical end will grow because it comes after the roots that are in the potting mix. And if you don't know what those two are, the basal end is the end closest to the base where the roots of the parent plant are. So think about a tree and you got a limb coming off of that trunk. The basal part of the limb is the biggest part that's closest to the trunk and the apical, the apex, is the tip. So um, if you were to cut that Va- that uh limb into sections you would have an apical end and a basal end so with cuttings you always want to put that basal end in the medium so if you've got your, your vine going in and out of that, that mix like a, a, sn- a snake or whatever then you want to make sure you're not cutting off the end that will be that the roots will be pushing uh, liquid and nutrients up to to make leaves the stuff on the back end of it will just die because it doesn't have any roots pushing anything to it but that apical end will grow because it comes after the roots that are in the potting mix okay next for the winter wait till the vines go completely dormant that's probably going to be around january or february where you live and you'll look for the growth from this year 2017 And optimally, you should use material that's at least as large of a diameter as a pencil, and it should have three to four nodes on the piece of vine. Um, Keep them oriented correctly. Again, with the end closest to the roots, the basal end as the bottom of the cutting, and the end that is closer to the tip of the vine as the top of the cutting. Make each cutting right below one of those nodes without cutting into the node. So the very bottom of that cutting should be... A node with just a little tiny bit of the vine sticking out underneath the node. And we do that because that's where it will most readily root. So it should look like this. From the bottom to the top, there should be you know about a half an inch of vine. Then a node, and then maybe another one or two nodes with just one node sticking out of the potting mix. Again, just keep it damp. They don't use any water because they're just sitting there doing nothing. When spring rolls around, they'll start to root and shoots will come out. Um, you can do the same thing with the, the node. You can scrape it off a little bit and add a little bit of rooting hormone, or you can just get it moist and add some rooting hormone. Most likely it won't make that much of a difference, but if you've got it, then just use it, and it might give you a little bit of an edge. Um, you should see about a 50 to 80% success rate from this. So if you want to make sure you get one cutting to root, You know, get half a dozen, get a dozen of them and stick them in there. And then, you know, if you have extras, you can give them away or sell them or do whatever. Do not pull them out of the potting mix to check and see if they're rooted. If they are rooted, you'll know because you'll have six inches of new growth. If they don't do that and they die, well, then they didn't root. And so you know, they didn't root. If you pull them out to check, you're going to have a bad time. In the words of someone Jack likes to quote, I think... You want dead plants? Because that's how you get dead plants. (laughs) The reason why you don't want to pull them out is because they might be very slowly growing a tiny root, using just barely enough energy to grow that one tiny root because they don't have any more energy. They don't have any more sugars. You know, they're just barely eking it out, and they've got that little tiny root, and you pull it out just to check on it, and there goes your root. A much call for a no-rooted plant out there. Anyways, there you go. Two different methods for rooting grapes. Lots of plants will do great with those methods. For more info about me, check out my podcast. It's called Homegrown Liberty on iTunes. Or you can go to my website at www.homegrownliberty.com. I have a fresh episode out today with an exciting announcement and a special offer for all you podcast listeners out there. If you hurry, and only if you hurry, to listen to the most recent episode because the offer ends Friday night, the 30th of June, which is probably the day that this podcast episode comes out. I'm Nick Ferguson. Do good things. Great stuff
0: from Nick Ferguson, another guy we're lucky to have as part of our expert council. I'm very glad he's kind of brought his podcast back. I think he was hitting his stride when he took a break from it, and uh, that's why I'm more than happy to support him in that effort. I think he's doing a really great job with that podcast. And I know he's got some other really cool things up his sleeve that will be coming soon. I was just talking to him by Facebook Instant Messenger today. And we were having a few good laughs about a few things, and we were uh, having some serious discussion as well about some of his future plans. Nick's a great friend and uh, one of the more switched-on people in the world that I know on permaculture. When I'm asked uh, by people uh, if I know a good permaculture uh, consultant that they can talk to in their area, I say talk to Nick Ferguson. Talk to Nick Ferguson, and don't worry about the fact that he's not in your area because I know he's going to give you good advice. And if you do want on-site consult. The flat matter is, and you pay somebody for the level of consulting you get from a good consultant. You know, a little bit of extra for the travel is not really the main expense anyway. And Nick can do a lot remotely, so I mean, really consider going to him as your first uh, your first uh, stop for permaculture consulting. Uh, next up, if you, if you wanted like the, the world renowned best permaculturist in the world, he's just kind of expensive to fly him in from either the Middle East or, or, or Australia, where he spends most of his time. The guy you'd be looking for is the guy that Nick and I both have our PDCs from, Jeff Lawton, another good friend of mine. And um, we have a question for him now, and he's coming to us from Sydney. I think he was in the middle of transport from one place to the other when he stopped and did this for us on cleaning up a pond. And I'm going to agree with most of this, but I'm going to come back with a slight disagreement. It's so very seldom I disagree with Jeff Lawton on anything, but I'll come back with a but-if
5: um, disagreement to this response. Um Jeff Lawton coming to you here from uh, Australia, um, and my uh, question is uh, from Trevor uh, Walquist, and uh, Trevor's in uh, River Falls, Wisconsin, um, USA, Zone 4B, and he has a five-acre pond on his property, which is quite a quite a pond, and um, he wants to know how he can clean. Uh, the pond that may be polluted with herbicide and fertilizers and how to filter the pond water that's entering the pond from other people's land to keep the pond clean. There's a series of small streams that feed the pond from, from the land and, um, there's about a hundred feet of each of these small streams between where it enters the property and where it connects to the pond. Well, five acres, uh, is quite a pond so you can't really expect to be able to drain it and clean the bottom now water is, is nutrient in solution and so uh, aquatic elements are extremely sensitive to um, pollutants in water so if there are fish alive and there is life in that pond then the pollution is not that bad because they'll only stand a little bit of pollution and then you get fish that go belly up and things start to die it goes stagnant, it goes smelly, it goes horrible so if that pond has got fish in it or life in it generally um, then it's not too bad yet, but I can understand you wanting to clean it. Now, what you've got to do is you've got to f- set up, like, constructed wetlands in between the entry point and where it gets to the pond. And these are going to be, like, smaller ponds. They don't have to really be sealed, but it's best to fill them with gravel. And if you can, put a um, a larger gravel of uh, two or three inches on the input side, just for a small section. And then uh, small gravel, about half-inch gravel, all the way through the rest of the of, of this small pond. Now you need a set of these cascading towards your actual five-acre pond. So th- they're not a fancy construction. They only they don't need to be more than three foot deep. In fact, they'll actually work if they're only two feet deep because you're going to plant it to uh, reeds or any plants that grow with their, their roots in the water and their head out of the water, so cattails work really well, they're very easy to grow um, and um, um, there's many many plants scurpus, juncus, validus shonoplexus, Frankmides, uh, papyrus um, there are lots um, that, that perform a filtering function, you can also put willows around those ponds and you can plant them by cuttings, they don't uh, damage the integrity of a dam wall. You don't need a lot of integrity on these ponds anyway. They can be pretty vague. So the topsoil can be pulled out. You could use that somewhere else. They just The water needs to sink in through the gravel, through the thick, through the large gravel. It will sink down to the lower layers and then come through the root zone and the reeds. So you don't want it too deep. You definitely don't want it more than three foot, three foot maximum. You really, two foot is kind of ideal, but you might get some sedimentation. So between two foot and three foot deep, the water then transits through the lower layers, through the, the, the root zone of the reeds, and they fill out, filter out the uh, problem elements, sedimentation, deposition elements of soils and also your toxins, they get embedded in the bodies of the reeds, now you repeat that process down each stream, so they're going to be like pearls on a string, but these are going to be reed bed, gravel reed bed filtration biological cleaning systems on a string of, of the pond wherever you can on the way through now you can't leave them empty because they'll fill up with toxic sediment or polluted sediment, you need to fill them up straight away get your gravel ready, get your overflow points ready, so they're going to f- cascade from pond to pond to pond now what you'll have to do is you they'll, if there's a lot of nutrient in that water these ponds are going to fill up very quickly with reeds they're going to jam up now every now and again you keep your eye on it when they jam up you're going to have to pull the reeds out say at least 50 percent or a little bit more across the pond in general thin it right down and compost that material then it will then they'll clog up again over a period of time and you keep thinning it and when you when you uh compost that material you'll lock the toxin up in the carbon cycle the toxins will bond to the carbon molecule become long chain molecules and become inert be quite safe to use especially on tree crops so um you've got yourself a biological filter or multiple biological filters along that system and um you'll get a, a, a very, very good result. It'll come out very, very clean and then you start to make sure that your pond has good um, vegetation on the land around the pond, the anaerobic soil that's in the, in the back of the pond where it sucks back in, soaks back into the top of the slope and then uh, emergent plants as well along the edge of the pond that emerge out of that two foot deeper water, then anchored plants like lilies that have their roots on the bottom and their leaves floating on the top, and some submerged plants as well. And then uh, make sure you've got uh, good healthy mud in that pond, so if you haven't or there's any toxic problems, get some mud out of a good pond full of life or a good lake full of life, get a few buckets of mud, throw it in there, that'll that'll bring in high quality um, zooplankton, uh, the anaerobic microorganisms that convert organic matter to anaerobic soils at the bottom of a pond. They produce soil faster than forests. And then crustaceans. You got plenty of them in in your part of the world there. So uh, shr- little shrimps, prawns, and 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 uh, uh, small crayfish. And then your fish, your chain of life in fish. So you've got a chain of life in in vegetation and a chain of life in fish right through to the anaerobic organisms, um, the zooplankton. Algae will come in on its own. That's just sunlight and organic matter. that will naturally be there, and you've got a clean pond. If you really have any more problems and you need more filtration, you're going to have to go to floating rafts that do exactly the same thing, but they they filter the, the water Um, from the floating stations on the pond. Now, they're pretty good fish habitat too, so you're increasing uh, the value to the fish. Now, you're in Wisconsin, so you've got another problem, sort of freeze over in winter. So if it all freezes, not a problem. But in between, if you want to keep this high functioning, some of them reed beds could be covered with a plastic house or a glass house so that you have a, an extended period, and some of the floating rafts could have a glass house on top of them, that means that section won't freeze underneath the glass house, and your reeds will carry on functioning as well, so you can have a good time mucking about with uh, greenhouse interactions in your colder climate, but um, and keeping reeds growing for longer, um, but you'll get yourself uh, an iconic system, beautiful pond, plenty of life, loads of fish or whatever else you want in life forms, accentuated there, and... Um, beautiful clean water and uh, you'll be locking up the toxins doing everybody else a favor downstream and you gain the compost with no danger of toxins really having any problems on your land because they'll be locked up in the carbon cycle any other questions i would love to answer it i love these sort of things aquatic systems are are the are the flows of our nutrient and the way that we need to operate our um Landscape governance, really. We don't need authority if we understand the water flows. Ancient peoples have operated for thousands of years without any government authorities or any, any um, jurisdictions. They just need to know how the water flows work and that everything works around the water flows. So if we can concentrate on these issues, um, in permaculture, um, our design mantra before any zoning or sectors or analysis is water first, then access, then landscape landscape structural positions. All right. Great giving you some of this advice. Um, Hope it all works out. Love to find out uh, as it does, Trevor.
0: Okay. So as I said when I introduced this, um, this is one of those things like 99%, 95% agree. It's really the very initial statement that I do take some exception with. And, I, I think Jeff is probably aware of everything I'm about to say, and has, you know, basically looked at the individual question and what most of us would be dealing with when it comes to farm ponds and things like that, <clears throat> versus some more industrial areas. So what Jeff said is, if you have living things in the pond, the pollution's not that bad because if it was, everything would die. And I think when we think of the type of pollution that is most likely to occur in non-industrial areas. Um, especially now with a lot of things that I'm going to talk about being far less produced, especially less produced and just allowed to just you know go out across the ground. But <clears throat> there are two – actually, there's three main pollutants that can be in water that can pollute fish for consumption that you can still have what looks like a dramatically healthy ecosystem. The first one is PCBs. Uh, Not far from me, there's a lake called Lake Worth. It's a beautiful lake, and it's a shame. And it it probably has at least something to do with Lockheed having a presence on it and other industries that were on it uh, earlier when it was first created. But it has a consumption ban on fish. And actually, um, it has had that ban since the the late 60s. And it was in the 70s that PCBs were made illegal, I believe. Late 70s, early 80s, somewhere in there. So it's been at least that long where you know there's been no further exposure. And here we are in 2017, and they've just lifted the consumption ban for some types of fish in the, in the, uh, in the, in the lake. But things like buffalo and um, catfish and things like that is still on the ban list. And any other fish are considered no more than one meal per two weeks. And here we're talking 40 years of those things being banned. And the ecosystem around Lake Worth is beautiful aquatic vegetation, birds, you name it. It's, it's a, it is, a, is it a damn shame that that lake has this problem because it would be probably one of the premier fisheries in our area if it didn't with anglers using it for things like white bass and catfish and things like that. Um, the other is mercury. And mercury has become a real problem in fish in general because so much of it's been released into our atmosphere that through rain and runoff it ends up in almost every aquatic system on some level, specifically in our ocean fish. And the third would be dioxins. You can, you can have a, what looks like a very healthy ecosystem And dioxins can be in there and be taken up into the fish flesh. And all of those things are things that we would not want to be eating. So I think when we look at building biofiltration, I think that is the answer. And even if we're dealing with that, if we just want, like we say, okay, this is not a place you would eat fish out of. We still want to do that. It will accelerate the breakdown. And certain other heavy metals as well can concentrate in fish flesh. So. There are things that we can have a good looking ecosystem. You look at the water, it's clear. It's got reeds, it's got every, you know, it's beautiful, and we still can have toxins in our fish. Um, There's a lot of, you know, mercury, for instance, in tuna caught out of the open ocean. So I I don't disagree with his sentiment or his advice at all. I just wanted to kind of caveat the intro that just because water has living things in it doesn't mean that, you know, it, it can't have serious toxin issues. So what we then have to look for is what is the source of the toxins, and if we have any doubts, we probably want to have the water tested, Uh, specifically if there's any potential for PCBs. PCBs are long, persistent toxins uh, that are, you know, there's a lot of things they say, well, it's carcinogenic, and when you research it, like, well, it could be, or maybe it's not, or we're not sure, it's not very conclusive, or it might have a small effect on cancer. PCBs are carcinogens. They cause cancer, period, you know, period, exclamation point, end of story. So please be careful with that if you're making decisions on what to eat out of where. Uh, With that, let's
6: go ahead and take another one, this one for Brandon Todd on hardware wallets. Hello, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com here to answer a question for the expert counsel. This question comes in from Charlie where he asks, Can you explain what a hardware wallet is, how to use it, and its pros and cons? Any recommendations for a specific wallet would also be appreciated. Okay, so first off, let's talk about what a hardware wallet is. A hardware wallet is just a little physical non-internet connected device that can generate bitcoin addresses and generate signatures from those private keys which it previously generated. These signed transactions can then be sent into a wallet application, usually hosted on your computer. From there, your internet-connected computer can then broadcast that transaction to the Bitcoin network to be validated and confirmed. So, to sum it up, a hardware wallet is just a little physical device with a little microcontroller board in it. The newer ones have uh, screens that can display addresses and buttons to physically enter PIN codes for your convenience. These devices are typically plugged into your computer via USB cable, and most of them are small enough to fit into your pocket. Alright, so now, directions for your hardware wallet are usually sent with that device, and if they are not, or directions are lost, then there are YouTube, there are plenty of YouTube tutorials for each uh, make and model available to walk you through it. Most of the common hardware wallets on the market right now seem to be the Trezor and the Ledger Nano S model. Now, the pros and cons. In the pros category, I would have to say security is the main thing with hardware wallets. You see, with these things, the, with the hardware wallets, the addresses and or keys it generates are done so all completely internally. And more importantly, the signing of transactions happen internally as well. This is very different from every other type of wallet software today. Doesn't matter if you're talking about online, mobile, or desktop wallets, all of these things sign transactions where they very briefly decrypt your private keys to do this. This leaves an albeit very brief window, but a window nonetheless, for a keylogger to sniff your unencrypted private key and phone it home to an attacker. With a hardware wallet, all of this momentary decryption of your signing keys happens inside this little fortified device with no keys ever touching your computer. It really is the most secure way to send a Bitcoin transaction. This means That you could use these devices on the most unsecure computers out there. Doesn't matter if that computer you're using has viruses or malware. This is literally, uh, there is literally no way for an attacker to get access to your funds, even if they're on your network. So, another pro would be that these hardware wallets are supporting a growing number of altcoins like Ethereum, Dash, Litecoin, just to name a few. These devices use a hierarchical, deterministic wallet structure, which means that it can hold an unlimited number of keys, thanks to BIP32 and BIP44. A recovery seed is also generated when the device is initialized. This means that if your device gets destroyed or lost, you can still gain access to all of your funds if you write down and save this seed. Alright, so now for the cons. These devices are a little more cumbersome to use than a mobile wallet, as you do need to connect them to a computer to send your funds. So I guess... They would be considered slightly less convenient than a mobile wallet. But I would argue that a hardware wallet and a mobile wallet are for different use cases. A mobile wallet is your walking around money, and a hardware wallet is like your vault. One other con could be the cost. These devices obviously cost money, and most are around $100 range. So when you're thinking about cold storage, I would think about paper wallets and hardware wallets. And so, you know, paper wallets are free and hardware wallets cost money. But then again, with, with paper wallets, you don't have the ability to send funds out of a paper wallet. And with a hardware wallet, you do. So you get the cold storage feature uh, plus the, the ability to send and not just receive Bitcoin with a hardware wallet versus a paper wallet. All right. So now, as for recommending any particular hardware wallet, I really can't as I have never used one. I actually just received my first hardware wallet, well that's not exactly true, I had an old Ledger Nano and just never used it and lost it, but I actually just received uh, another hardware wallet in the mail the other day and just haven't got around to playing with it. So far I've been an old school paper wallet cold storage guy, but I finally took the plunge and bought a Trezor. I think I will eventually buy Ledger Nano S Model 2 just so I can compare and do some reviews for everyone. But as far as I can see from the market's response, I don't think you can go wrong with either a Trezor or the Ledger Nano S Model hardware wallet. So, thank you, Charlie, for the question. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com reminding you to all stay safe out there with cryptocurrency and wishing you all a fulfilling day.
0: So, good stuff there on that and... uh I'll tell you what, guys. Uh, we have an incredible, incredible expert council. And before I handle my question for today, I want to throw out a request. I need questions. Um, I have a little bit of piking going on on the council. There's a few questions out that have not been answered by a few members. But um, if I'm going to have a show for you guys on Friday next week with five or six, I, I need some more questions. Um, I think Charles the Humble Mechanic is loaded up pretty hard with questions. I know Nick Ferguson said he'll have another one for me next week. But, man, I need questions for Mike and Sue LaPreeze on homeschooling and raising children. Uh, I need questions for Old Grouch. I need questions for Darby Simpson. I need questions for Erica Strauss. I need questions for Keith Snow. Um, I I don't really know. (laughs) I think I've got some questions um, in for Brandon right now that he's working on that we just heard from. Uh, And I know we hear from Nicole Sauce today, but I could use more questions for her. Uh, definitely um, probably the most popular council member is Doc Bones, but uh, right now I think he's got a clean slate. We haven't had a question for Ben Falk uh, from Whole Systems Design on cold climate permaculture in a very long time. Uh, We get a lot of questions for Gary Collins from Primal Power Method, but I I don't have any for him right now. Again, keeps know I could use questions for. I don't have any for him right now. Darby Simpson, clean slate. Stephen Harris, uh, I think I just sent him one today. Uh, I think he had quite a few questions he might have lost in some kind of computer crash or something from an email he sent me. So, you know, maybe some for him. Michael Jordan, I know, has a clean slate. We have no questions in him right now on bees and mead making and all that stuff. Uh, again, Nick Ferguson, I think, is working on one for next week. John Pugliano, we had tons of questions for him, but right now he has a clean slate. Um Hadn't had an update from Paul Wheaton in a while, but that's on him. Jeff Lawton, that's the first question I had for Jeff, except for the one we had like a week ago in a long time. We have the number one permaculturist in the world, folks. If you have questions for Jeff, get them in. Again, Erica Strauss uh, from Northwest Edible Life. Tim Glantz, Old Grass Military Surplus. Um, like a Sula Priest, we need questions for you, so get them in, man. And these guys will these guys will knock them out. Like I said, I got a piker or two in the mix right now, not getting answers, questions back. But uh in, in general, so they're getting them done. They're just a little bit slow. But summer's a slower time. If you guys want full shows, you know, I mean, I'm happy to run six, seven questions on a show like this. But I need the questions. Next up, before I, I, I take my question for the day, which is going to be on, on, on training cats, which is at uh, is, is some levels an oxymoron. I have an idea, and I, I would like y'all's help with it, and, but I don't want it to become just a way for people to say, hey, look at my YouTube channel. I, I was sitting today looking at YouTube, and I was looking at this one channel um, called Angling with Brent. And I really like angling with Brent because he goes out and catches a lot of stuff, especially in saltwater. I think he's in Florida. And there's a lot of saltwater fish out there that anglers just know that fish isn't any good to eat. And I'm sitting there going, I eat those, I eat those, I eat those. So Brent, one of his main series is, is he goes out and catches fish that other people say suck, and they cook them up and eat them. And with the exception of ladyfish, which I could have told him not to eat that, um, everything he's tried so far has been good. Uh, I was watching a, a video by him and his wife today. They were making fish heads uh, soup and uh you know that's that's a valid thing made across the world and takes something we see as waste and 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 makes it into something valid so what does that all have to do with this well i was thinking i have a lot of youtube channels that i subscribe to and it might be cool if i did even maybe if depending on how many we get in maybe even a daily segment that can be like a one to two minute segment of a youtube channel now i i want to be clear, I'm not saying I won't help people because one of the main reasons I want to do this is to help YouTube creators uh, because many YouTube creators are beyond YouTube doing other things too, and that's good for them. Um, and certainly, I want to help this audience first. But I don't want to do is turn this into a thing where everybody with a YouTube channel says, My channel, my channel, my channel. And you go to somebody's channel and have like four videos, right? So I think we'd have to place some kind of quality uh, assessment behind it before you got featured. Maybe a certain number of videos and at least a certain number of subscribers. Maybe something not huge, but maybe like at least 500 or something like that. Because I want to help the little guy get off the ground, but I also want to feature people that you know are are, are doing really well that I just think you guys would be interested in this angling with Brent. He has like 19,000 subscribers. It's not a huge channel, but it's very respectable. And I enjoy the content. Now, to be able to do this, even if I do this, let's say, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, Maybe we do it Mondays and Fridays. Maybe I do it, you know, Mondays, Tuesdays, and Fridays. Or so, I, I don't Maybe Monday, Tuesdays, and Thursdays, where it shows that pretty much are just me. Uh, I don't know. But if I'm going to do it any level of frequency, I'll wear out my list really quick. So I'll need people suggesting channels. I'd like to, before you guys start sending me a bunch of channels, because we will not launch this until the week after next. So there's going to be a short week next week. I don't launch stuff in short weeks. So it would be the next week. So I just want to know what you think of that. Would you like to have that as a segment? I, you can email me, but I'd, I'd rather have you comment on the blog for today's episode 2035. Like, would you like to know about unique YouTube channels like Angling with Brent? Um, and I don't think that everybody will like every channel. So I don't think even if we did one every day, it would get to be too much. You might hear one a week that you add to your subscription list. And I don't want it to all be, you know, survival prepping permaculture. Like this one here is fishing. I guess that's loosely related, but, man, I've got channels that I follow on all kinds of stuff. Some are news channels. Some are just funny. And I think that what we've we've gained in YouTube for a lot of people is a replacement of cable television. I think that's a good thing, too. So just wanted to throw that out there as, a, as an idea and, and, and get y'all's opinion on it. And love to hear it. And then if we're going to do it, maybe we'll launch it on Monday of not next week because Monday next week is which is you know this coming Monday. It's going to be a rewind show, and I'm taking the fourth off, so it would be Monday week, I guess you, the way we used to say it up north. Anyway, um, so that brings me to my question today, and this is from Dave. Dave says, "Hi Jack, I keep pigeons on my property. I'm starting to notice that I'm being invaded by chipmunks and mice. I am worried they are getting into my pigeon feeders and going to get my birds sick." I see you just got to catch to help with your rodent problems. I never had a cat before, and I'm hoping you can advise a bit on how to care for a kitten, how to make sure it doesn't run away, scratch up furniture, what to do when I'm at work, etc. What type of cat to get? My wife is nervous about getting a cat, so anything you can say to talk her into it would be helpful. Thanks, Dave. No, dude, I'm not talking to your wife into getting a cat. That's your job. I can tell you about how I view this. Okay. So first of all, my wife and I have three cats. We have two outdoor cats and we have one indoor cat. The indoor cat is a special kitty that Dorothy wanted to adopt many years ago and she's now about 14 years old. That's pretty old for a cat and she's starting to have some health issues and she'll probably be with us another year or two and she'll pass on to Kitty Heaven. And we have made a commitment and I keep hearing, even though I've made this commitment, I keep hearing from her, even though this was her cat, no more inside cats! Why? Because you have to clean litter boxes. And they stink, and it's not a fun chore, and I'm not big on it. And it's her cat, so I don't do it very often. Uh, though I will on occasion just because it's nice as a husband to do something nice for your wife once in a while. That's that's considered a very high-level nice thing to do by, by the Dorothy, right? So I actually am a big fan in the right environments of outside cats. They go potty outside, they live outside, they like it outside, and they hunt. As a homesteader, and and this is a big thing though, how big a property you have, how much time are they going to spend off your property, will it be a problem for your neighbors, all these are questions you can only answer for yourself, Um, so there's a responsibility there. And I know I'm going to get people all pissed off at me, because I do whenever I talk about this, they will kill songbirds and lizards, and they, they hunt, that's what they do, that's why we have them here. And you can say, you know, but they'll kill a lizard. Well, the dog killed a lizard when we first moved in. Max killed a lizard. And the roadrunner jumped the fence and stole his lizard and then ran back on the other side of the fence and taunted him with it. So I'm pretty sure the roadrunner would get, I'm serious, this is not a cartoon, right? The dog killed the lizard, he was sitting there playing with it, he walked away for a minute and this roadrunner was watching him from the other side of the fence, hopped up on the fence, came into the yard, grabbed the lizard, went on the other side of the fence and was running up and down the fence like a freaking chicken with a lizard in its mouth taunting the dog, right? So animals kill each other. So like, you got to get over that. That said, I'm a little concerned when you tell me pigeons. Um... You know, how are you keeping Are you keeping them in dove coats or are you keeping them in a coop? You got to make sure that that coop is cat resistant. If you're keeping them for squabs and hatching babies, a cat will get in there and kill them. Right? That, that would be a very difficult thing to train that cat not to do. The other danger is to your birds as a whole. If they routinely find places to land on the ground and eat, and most pigeons do, and I'm thinking about doing pigeons eventually here, so this will be a concern for me too. Uh, cats will go after them. They will see them as a bird. They are a large bird. Uh, they are not a bird that is easily taken by cats, but cats can take them. And they're they're that, they're that size bird where you do have to have a little bit of concern that what you have is a lot of damage done without the bird actually being killed. I, I, I caught a cat with a pigeon one time, and it had basically torn the skin all off underneath its wing. And uh, we, we ended up deciding that pigeon could best serve as, you know, Pigeon on a grill with some bacon and it, pigeons are good eating that's why some that's why some people keep them so you're gonna have to make sure that you you teach the the cat that the adult birds are not to be messed with and that's not as hard as you would think and it's still going to kill a robin or a grosbeak or a cardinal or a mockingbird or whatever it can get its little claws on whenever it gets a chance because that's what it is and all you can do is begin to train them that certain things that live on the property belong on the property are not to be messed with. And the number one tool that I have used with my cats to do that is a garden hose. A garden hose and this sound, (coughs) (coughs) like a cat hissing. When I see them behaving in any way that looks aggressive, tail swishing, crouched down, anything that looks like they're approaching any of the animals that live on this farm that they're not supposed to touch with, I give them that sound and they look around, and then they go back to doing what they're doing. That's just a reconditioning. When they were young kittens, they didn't bother anything. They were too little. They were too busy playing with each other and chasing grasshoppers. Okay. As they began to get a little bigger, they began to take an interest in some of the ducks, especially young ducks, and what I would do is I would watch them, and when they would start to make any type of aggressive move toward them, especially if they'd take a run at them, I'd hit them with the garden hose. I'd hit him with the garden hose for about a quarter of a second, shut the garden hose and drop it, and look around like, you know, kind of whistling and, nah, I don't know what what happened, cat. I don't know what happened. So that it, didn't, it wasn't me. The, 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 the action resulted in getting wet. You can do that with spray bottles. You can do that with garden hose. You can do it with anything that gets them wet. They don't like it. So that's kind of the basics of the overall training. How do we make sure it doesn't run away? Cats generally don't. Sometimes cats will wander and not come home. This does happen. However, what I've noticed in years of reading lost cat advertisements on things like Nextdoor and online and in signs on walls and in on polls and in newspapers back when people did that, it is almost inevitable that the cat that ran away was an inside cat that got outside and didn't know how to deal with its freedom. We had a cat named Ralph. We had him... Longer than any animal we've ever had in the Spierko household, this, this current one anyway. We got him in 1996. He was already an adult cat, and we laid him to rest here on this farm. He's buried right next to his buddy Blackie, the Black Labrador. And uh, I think that cat was in his 20s when he died. That's an old cat. That cat moved from one location in Arlington, Texas to another location in Arlington, Texas. He then moved to Pennsylvania. He then moved back to Arlington, Texas. He then moved to Hot Springs, Arkansas, and then he moved here to Azle, Texas. He was a traveling cat. Once he knew we were his family, when we went to a new place, the only thing we did was keep him inside for one day. We made sure he had a couple meals, he had something to drink, he took a nap, and then, oh, I live here now, open the door, and he was an inside-outside cat. I'm okay with that, too. But if you're going to do that, you do need to litter train the cat in case he or he or she ends up in the house a little bit too long. And you do need to make it a habit still if you want the benefits of having an outside cat. The inside is like to eat, to be pet, to hang out, and then out the door you go. And obviously bring your animals in during extreme weather conditions, extreme cold, things like that. Cats don't seem to have much problem dealing with the heat. They'll find a shady place and they'll sleep. But cold, yeah, when it gets too cold... Bring your animals in for the evening and stuff, and that's a good reason to litter train any cat. The good news is they litter train very, very easily. If I had a kitten and I was I was uh, wanting to use it as rodent control, uh, it would be an inside cat for a very brief period of time. Uh, my belief is buying a cat does not make sense. There are so many cats that need homes, and I think there's plenty of adult cats that would make wonderful cats. The problem is that they are a little more difficult to train to leave livestock alone because they're set in their ways. The the good side of an adult cat is you know what you're dealing with. You want a big cat. You do not want a tiny little furry cat like the song that Sheldon sings about on uh, Big Bang Theory, the soft kitty, you know, little ball of fur kitty. You want a big old cat. I prefer Toms for rodent control, though I have to say that while Fox is like 14 pounds, that's a big house cat. Dana only comes in at about nine. She is the better hunter. So there's no hard rule with that, but a bigger cat is going to be able to subdue and take larger prey, which can be good or bad depending on how it looks. I'm also going to say this. like Chipmunks are probably not going to give your birds a disease, and mice honestly probably aren't going to be giving your birds a disease. Your number one priority right now needs to be doing everything you can to mouse-proof your coop which is probably what you're using. And if you're using dove coats, then all you need to do is put basically a blocker on your pole so that they can't get up the pole. Realizing sometimes I use words without explaining them, as I expect people to know, a dove coat is basically a house, like a big giant birdhouse with a bunch of holes in it. Usually it's freestanding on a pole. It's open on multiple sides. There's little holes in it, a little shelf where the pigeon can land and go inside, and there's usually three little shelves in each compartment of a dug coat because that gives the adults a place to sit and they put their babies on a little shelf. And they'll put one group of babies on one shelf and before that group's completely fledged, they'll actually start another set of eggs. So those three shelves are generally how that's done. And most people keep coops kind of keep like apartments for each pair and each apartment has three shelves. I don't know if that's what uh, david's doing but that's that's what i'm talking about when i say dovecoats if it is a coop then we want to make sure that all around the bottom we cover it with hardware cloth keep them out so what the mice or chipmunks are eating is like food that falls outside and things like that and it's not that big a deal mice i would be a little bit more worried about causing a disease issue than chipmunks chipmunks are a natural part of the ecosystem Pigeons are very resistant to disease in general, and both mice and um, chipmunks will be very easily controlled with simple trapping. If you, you look up um, peanut butter bottle five-gallon bucket water trap rodent on Google, like something like that, you'll find a very common trap people build where they take a five-gallon bucket, basically you put a piece of steel rod across it, and you put a bottle on it, like a, like a plastic soda bottle, and you smear it with peanut butter. And a little rodent goes out there, tries to eat the peanut butter, bottle swings around, rodent falls in the water, rodent drowns. You fill the bucket about three-quarters of the way with water. Very, very effective on, on mice and would probably be very effective on chipmunks. Again, I would be less concerned about the chipmunks than the mice. And if you have mice, I would also say, well, what type of mouse do you have? Do you have little, little gray mouses, little house mouses, little uh, you know, invasive mouses? Or are we talking something like a little brown mouse with white feet? We call it the white-footed deer mouse. Um, those guys are also, you know, very much a native, important part of our ecosystem. They're very friendly. I've grabbed them off. The, when I was a kid, we used to find them under stuff all the time. And if the dogs did, because the dog found them, they would just gulp and they were gone. They would eat them whole. Uh, but we used to grab them by the tails and pick them up and knock. I'm not advising you to do that, but I've never seen a white, a white foot uh, deer mouse bite. Um, We used to play with them. Probably not smart because you could always get one with rabies, but you know, we were rural kids and we just, there was something to do was play with the field mice. Um, So it would depend too on the species of mouse, how much concern I would have. But I think cats are a fantastic addition to a homestead. I think they do a lot to control pests. I think they are a great companion. And I think they can be a working animal on a homestead and they can be a good citizen. In your homestead. The, the, again, the advantage of the adult cat though is you know what you're getting. So you know you've got a, a lean, large, predator looking cat. You want a cat that looks like a predator. You don't like want a big flat fluffy cat. You don't want, for outdoor cats, you do not want long haired cats. You want a short haired cat. And you need to work with the animal. And you need to form a bond with the animal. The big thing I'm saying here is some people will buy a livestock guardian dog. And that livestock guardian dog will be well trained and it will see itself as part of the flock of sheep or part of the flock of, you know, cattle or part of the flock of what, or chickens or whatever it's part of and that dog will basically become livestock. He just has a different instead of graduating to bovine university or getting sheared or getting made into goat tacos or whatever, he just keeps going. But you just kind of put them there and you don't, you don't really do a lot with them. I don't think cats work well that way. They, you, you're basically creating a feral cat with a home or a stray cat with a home if you do that. I believe if you want a good citizen cat, you have to have a good bond with that cat where that cat trusts you. Um, I don't believe in striking cats. I don't really believe in striking dogs, but I'll do it in certain situations. What I'm talking about is Lucy uh, recently killed one of my baby turkey poults. Uh, I didn't have her training collar on her. Uh, I was moving a turkey tractor. One of them got out. She grabbed it and immediately sunk her teeth into it, and I knew it was going to die. And I grabbed her, and I gave her like six smacks to the nose, hard ones. I'm talking like that, right? Because it was immediate. And because I knew she would understand why it happened and I knew it would go inside her head and I knew that it would work. So I don't want to hit the animal, but in that situation, I can't afford to lose more livestock. And I'm not some ignorant regnant, once you kill something, you have to shoot it. Bullshit. I knew that that immediate correction would work because I caught her. I, it was the, the bird is falling from her mouth as I'm hitting her, right? It won't work on a cat so I won't hit the cat. You, if you break trust with a cat, it's done. It's done. That's why things like a spray ball or whatever, where you're never, even if they see you spray them, or if they see you hold the hose, to them it's still it's the hose that did it. But if you hit a cat, I'm telling you right now, you make an enemy, and you lose the bond. The bond with a cat is the key. When a cat sees you, it should be happy to see you. You know you've got a good bond with your cat when it lives outside, but when you walk out the door, not just for breakfast, the cat runs up to you and is excited to see you. You know the cat you got a bond with your cat when after you fed your cat and it's had its, you know, food for the day or food for the morning or whatever it is, it's got a full belly, and follows you around a little bit, almost dog-like. Then when you reach down to pick it up, it starts purring. These are things that show you have that bond. When you have that bond, the cat will take some level of direction from you. It's not like training a dog. It's more difficult in some ways. But they're very self-sufficient. These are the things you need to think about. Um, you got to think about vet costs. My personal preference is to find somebody that's stuck with kittens that doesn't want them. You get a free cat. And it's going to be the most expensive cat you'll ever buy. Because you're going to want to get it. When you get a cat like this, for this purpose, female, you need to get it neutered so it doesn't have kittens. Male, you need to get it neutered so it doesn't run away. So it doesn't go tearing up other cats so it doesn't go pissing all over the walls. So when you when you have to pay your own fee for this, it gets pretty expensive. When you adopt from a shelter, generally like a $35 fee, and it includes neutering or whatever, um, but at least somebody's trying to put that cat in a home. Uh, I also know people. some people have very strong feelings about out, outdoor cats, so I'm always honest when I am adopting a cat that this is what I'm looking for. Dana and Fox, I found them by posting on Nextdoor and said... We are a farm. These cats will be well loved and well cared for. They're going to live outside. They're going to eat a songbird or two. But you know, we're looking for two kittens, so they would have companionship. I actually think that's a good idea too. One cat can be very happy, but two cats are happier. Um, These cats now are you know a year and a half, two years old, and they we still find them curled up with each other, sleeping, playing with each other, and then they go their separate ways. If you're going to do that, two females or a male and a female not two toms, even neutered, neutered. Two fema- a female and a male, or two females. This is the way to go with that. Um, I would keep the cat indoors until it's, you kind of make your own decision, but you kind of know when, when the cat can run around, it can look after itself a little bit. I mean, you, you, when we got our cats, I think they were about six weeks old. And since they were strays that were living under a trailer a few miles away, and we thought they might even go home, Uh, we kept them in our garage with a litter box for two weeks. And then we just opened it and just let them be. And I would say, you know, if you get a kitten that's weaned, two to three weeks of indoors and get the cat out as early as possible. Because what's going to happen is he or she is going to be a little timid, and they're going to go a little bit. And they're going to come back and they're going to go a little bit and they're going to come back and they're going to go a little bit further and come back and they'll learn their territory and they won't get lost. You wait till the cat's a lot older. If it has never been an indoor cat, it may just haul ass. Right. So or if, been, if, it's, if it's never been outdoors and you keep it too long, it might just like freak out and run away. So younger kittens is the way to go. Um, plan for all your expenses and don't do it just because you have mice. Like if it's a solution to that, great. But I think when we bring an animal into our home, we're taking responsibility. Cats live 14, 16, 20 years. That's a big commitment. Uh, another option though would be if you could find somebody trying to rehome an, an already outdoor cat that kind of hangs around a homestead. And and then I'm gonna tell you, all you're gonna have to do, as long as they're already kind of disciplined on certain, you know, not not going after your stock or whatever. Keep them indoors for two or three days. Make sure that they've eaten good. Make sure they've they've kind of found a place to take a nap, and uh, just open the door and let them out. and 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 cats adopt humans really, really quick. Uh, that's why their domestication, as far as I know, in many ways actually predates canines on a larger scale. And so people were working with dogs before cats, but cats became kind of a mainstream thing to keep around. Uh, m- before dogs did, and one of the reasons is because they adopt us so easily. Uh, the other reason is because you think of things like bubonic plague and stuff cats getting rid of mice was a good thing, and they eat less, and they feed themselves a great deal, so that you know when you think of people in the past that like you know whether you 're going to eat tonight or not was a real big question, often, having a dog you have to feed was a lot more of a burden than having a cat you have to feed, but they 're great animals, I believe they have a long history with men for a reason. And uh, they just require responsible ownership. So hopefully that helps you. With that, if you like our show and you want to help support us, one of the ways that you can do that is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. tspa T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. And uh, when you're there, you can do something like click on a link to see the Amazon deals of the day. Shop for anything at all on Amazon and check things out over there. And many of you shop Amazon all the time anyway. And to see the current item of the day, you can click a link to see that. And when you see that current item of the day, you can uh, give a read-up on it and see what I'm recommending on any given day. And there's a whole list of stuff I've been recommending for well over a year now. Today's item of the day is another encore item. This is something I've recommended in the past, and it is for our animals. And it could be for cats, but mainly it's a a thing that gets used for dogs. It's a product called Zymox, Z-Y-M-O-X, topical spray. It's a 1% um, uh, steroid uh, hydrocortisone uh, spray. And it also has a group of enzymes, uh, which I won't try to read, but there's three different enzymes that destroy bacteria, virus, and fungal microorganisms. And what this is best for is what we call hot spots on dogs. And uh, Charlie seems to get them on his back feet. And uh, the other day, I was you know, looking at his feet, and they're not bad yet, but I could see just a little bit of hair removal and a little bit of pink showing on, on one of his feet. I immediately broke this stuff out, and he gets sprayed a couple times a day with it, and it's it's pretty much gone now. Max had uh, a little bitty, you know, dime-sized hair patch missing from one of his forearms where he had chewed over something itching him. That healed it up in a day. I'm a big believer in alternative medicine and things like that, but a lot of stuff like that requires patience and not messing with it. You can tell a person stop picking that sore. And they'll usually do it for their own self-interest. The dog just doesn't understand. It, it itches. It bothers them. They're going to chew it. They're going to bite it. This stuff must taste like crap because not only does it help, like when I've seen them lick it right after you do it, they shake their head. So you don't have to use like a bitter apple uh, anti-chew or anything to go with it. Though if your dog's hard-headed, you might. Uh, so it's just a great thing. I think it belongs in your DFAC. That would be your doggy first aid kit. And, again, I'm a big believer in being responsible for our animals and having things around to take care of them. Uh, it will save you from having to put your, uh, your dog in the cone of shame if they chew something too much, and it works. Side note, this is not medical advice. I'm not suggesting you do it. But what we realize is the 1% hydrocortisone spray was probably good for people too, especially since it considered, contained these these enzymes uh, that, again, destroy bacteria, virus, and uh, fungal microorganisms. I've used it a couple times. I use it today um i was uh, moving i moved my boat uh to a different spot on the property and i wanted to disconnect my uh, trailer so i grabbed a couple pieces of firewood to put behind the boat uh, trailer wheel so it didn't roll down the hill you know after i disconnected it from the truck and they had been laying where fire ants had built fire ant nests and i got bit like six seven times on each hand like almost immediately I knocked them off when i came in the house i sprayed my hands with it and uh it still stung for a while but it didn't take long and then they never, you know, how fire ant bites break out. It never broke out because I did it before they actually started to really show. Um, last fall, I was out working when we were redoing the aviary, and I don't know what happened, but I looked down at my hand. Nothing hurt. I had two little tiny pinprick blood spots on my on the back of my hand. It almost looked like a, a like a, a microscopic pit viper snake bit me, like two snake fangs. And I figured I must have just bumped it against a couple of the wires on the hardware cloth out there, and they just happened to be close together. Um, and the next day, it was kind of starting to look a little infected. And like two days later, it was kind of like a, like a little micro-necrotic thing, that the little holes that joined together, and there was like pus in the middle. And you know what it was? It was some sort of a spider bit me. Uh, I wasn't obviously one of a recluse or a widow because I had no other symptoms and it wasn't as bad. And I've been bit by brown recluse before and it wasn't as bad as, as that got unless maybe I developed some sort of resistance to it from that prior bite. But I don't know of anything like that, but I started using this on it, cleared it up almost instantly. So if something would be well treated by hydrocortisone, it probably would be well treated by this though. I can't recommend you do that, but this is another one of those dual purpose things like, you know, Fish antibiotics, just saying, something to think about. Um, It says right on it, for animal use only, that's the way you're supposed to use it. I'm just telling you what I've done, and I haven't had any adverse effects. My wife's used it for a few scrapes and things like that, too. All right, with that, let's get to the song of the day today. Um, We have what I call a dual-meaning song today. John Adam picked another great song. It's too much my wife's not here when I kick this on. And play it for the end of the show because it's by one of her favorite bands, Ario e. Speedwagon. Uh, I like Ario e. Speedwagon. My wife loves Ario e. Speedwagon. I think her favorite album in the world is You Can Tune a Piano, but You Can't Tune a Fish. Uh, this song is called Roll with the Changes. And it's actually a very brief song on lyrics. I'm actually going to give you the lyrics right here. As soon as you are able, woman, I am willing to make the break we are on the brink of. My cup is on the table, our love is spilling, waiting here for you to take a drink of. So if you're tired of the same old story, turn some pages. I'll be here when you are ready to roll with the changes. I knew it had to happen, felt the tables turning, got me through my darkest hour. I heard the thunder clapping, felt the desert burning until you poured on me like a sweet sun shower. So if you're tired of the same old story, turn some pages. I'll be here when you are ready to roll with the changes, roll with the changes. That's the whole song. It's amazing they got as much time out of it as they did, but uh, a lot in there. But, th- I mean, the, the basic on-the-surface interpretation of the song is this is a guy with a girl at that part of a relationship where you, you haven't really committed to each other yet, yet. Maybe she's had shitty relationships in the past. Maybe not. That's subject to interpretation. But he's like, I'm ready to take this to the next level. And when you're ready to actually deal with what that means and roll with the changes, I'm ready. Also, I mean, I take that to extrapolate out, if you don't get there, I might not be here, right? Because there's people and people get in different places in their lives. That's sometimes like, I'm ready to move to something more meaningful. But on the, on the secondary, this is actually, to me, one of the most positive inspirational songs uh, that's, that's ever been put out, that's especially been popular, because this is life. Life is at some point, we have to jump. We have to take that extra step. We have to commit, and not just in relationships, but do you really want a business? Then you gotta freaking jump for it. You gotta go for it. You gotta take a shot. Do you really want a better job? Then you gotta put yourself out there and get told no a hundred times to get the one yes. Do you really want an opportunity? Then you have to knock on every door and have it shoved in your face multiple times until you find it. Do you want to be a better athlete? Then you have to work for it and you have to, you have to try new things. You have to push yourself to the limit to roll with the changes. If we leave things as they are, then they will only be at best as they are. And let me explain the other side of that to you on this Friday. It's what I've always talked about. The sliding scale of life. If you are not advancing yourself into freedom and liberty and independence and self-reliance and self-sufficiency, life is taking it away from you. The mere passage of time is making you less of all of those things. So if if you leave things the way they are, and you keep doing things only the way they are, and you don't learn anything new, and you don't expand your horizons, and you don't try anything new, and you don't do anything beyond what you've always done, The best that you can hope for is you're actually doing a little bit more than you think you are, and it's enough to hold you at stasis where you are. And the most likely result will actually be a decline in all of the things that you love in your life. But when we're always striving, we're always willing to try something new, we're always willing to do just a little bit more, we advance. And it is only by advancing that we really can prevent loss. Again guys, you're born, you're born with a single chance, a single dash, a birth date and a death date and a dash that will be you at some point in a eulogy on a tombstone somewhere. They'll put those two numbers up and they'll put that dash. You get that one single shot at it. Fortunately, there's millions of shots within it. We've got a great weekend coming up. For many of you, it's a long weekend. If you're smart, you took one of those vacation days on Monday. Enjoy it. But let this be a seed. Let you let this go in your mind. Think about this. What will you do differently? What will you do a little bit more of? Will you jump? Will you take the shot? Will you make the effort to do just a little bit more? to make sure you can preserve all of the things in your life that you have that you want to keep. That's what real preparedness, real lifestyle design, and what modern survivalism are all about. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.